From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 191 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine and dandy. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. Did you have a good Easter? It was uh, a very bizarre Easter, but it, it was really good. I just, um, I, I don't remember if we talked offline or online about our plans and such, but ultimately I just, I, I we threw everything to the wind and, you know, by the time we got around to trying to say, well, what do we want for Easter dinner? I'm like, we don't really know. So we just made spaghetti. <laughs> and that was our our fancy Easter dinner. And it just, you know, for lunch, you know, nothing but uh, deviled eggs. Just because it's like, well, mm-hmm. what, what else do you eat on Easter? So we'll just eat deviled eggs. So it was just, it was really, really strange. And then it, it was kind of bizarre because I was looking forward to watching a, a lot of, a lot of, Easter movies that are typically on TCM, I ones that I have seen a million times, like just in random pieces because I can never sit all the way through them. Um, and they really didn't show anything special for Easter besides besides Easter Parade at eight o'clock and eight o'clock Eastern time at least. So it was like, huh, not even TV seemed normal for this past weekend. So I'm just like, eh, maybe everyone did Easter like so well last year while we were all on lockdown during the pandemic that this year that like, eh, let's let's make things different so uh, we we ran with that and it was just kind of it was kind of a strange day but it was relaxing so can't complain entirely how was yours oh it was nice on saturday we had a on our court we had a um potluck and then i think there were 300 easter eggs that we hid all wow. oh, I didn't hide them, but the, the moms mostly hid them all around for the children to find the eggs. They, and they asked permission. Is okay if we put eggs in your garden? Because I, I, I found out that I guess there's a strict rule on the court that the children cannot go into my garden at all. Everybody's paranoid they're going to trample something. And I said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and put them on the you know, in the patio and all that. And so um, the next day I, I found eggs. <laughs> still that had not been discovered. So I told the little neighbor boy when I saw him, hey, you want to, we did a hot and cold, you know, <laughs> kind of game so you could find the eggs. But um, yeah, and then Sunday, it was just some friends came over. We had a, a brunch sort of on the patio and just vis- visited for the whole afternoon, which was nice out in the garden. So, and it was very pleasant weather. And all that. And then, yeah, the only TV I watch is there's been a series I've been watching called The Chosen, which is a, they're, they're planning to be a seven season, uh, seven season series on the life of Christ. And it's very well done. 
And um, so they they dropped the first episode of season two on Easter. So that's what I watched in the evening. All that. So that was like the only Easter themed thing I think I watched because I watched the first season all during Lent. So yeah. of it. So but well, it was, that sounds like but, a nice. It was. It was very nice. Time. And I have a lot of ham <laughs> left over because my friends did not take enough. I bought to-go containers and said, take this. And uh, I'm going to be eating ham for quite a while. Yeah, so. it's uh, that was the one thing that I missed. We we still had some ham in the freezer from Christmas that I don't even know if it'd still be good. But I feel like it would have been, been okay. I would have eaten it. Only four months. But... I was like, you know what? For the spaghetti that we have, I'll throw in a little pancetta, and that will be my Easter ham. And mm-hmm. there you go. just took it that way. But uh, yeah, I was—I probably would have ended up making lamb, but I was that person who went to the grocery store at like eight o'clock on Saturday night and was like, "I'm going to be able to have my pick of whatever I want." <laughs> there was nothing in terms of lamb or even even good hams. There was only like mm-hmm. the sad sad hams from the the off-brand that you've never heard of that is you know a barbecue seasoned ham and I'm like, i don't i don't want any of that so yeah yeah oh it was I, yeah my family was a lamb for easter family but carol's was ham so we always have had ham the last few years someday i'll make a lamb someday or have to do a combo you know like the uh the turducken for thanksgiving oh. <laughs> you need to make like the the i guess it would still be lamb for the ham lamb combination <laughs> yeah i did turducken once i think for christmas many years ago it wasn't i was the only one who enjoyed it yeah i've never <laughs> so, had <laughs> yeah, i liked it so oh well well i'm glad you had a good time though but but we, we are starting out. Again, we started out with an obituary last week. We're starting out with an obituary this week. Have you, you may not know the name Mark Elliott, but chances are you know his voice. He was the voice of Disney movie trailers, television promos, those home video titles on VHS and DVD from the late 1970s, really up to 2008. He passed away recently at the age of 81. He was a well-known radio DJ, and it, I'm get got a lot of this from Variety. Um, he became one of Hollywood's premier voiceover artists. He was heard on all kinds of movie trailers and promos for both CBS and Fox during the 1980s and 90s. But it was his warm and comforting Midwestern tone promoting Disney products that made him familiar to millions around the world. So he was born John Harrison Frick, Jr., in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on September 24th, 1939. He started his professional career as a disc jockey on commercial radio in his hometown in 1957. And after working at various stations in Iowa, Ohio, Ontario, and San Francisco, that's where he got his radio name, Mark Elliott, for the first time. He ended up in Los Angeles in 1970 for the first of two stints at KHJ, and then he worked at KISS, um, in between his two stints at KHJ. So after 20 years in radio, he branched out into voiceovers in 1977. And his first paid work was the voiceover on the trailer for Smokey and the Bandit. And there 
he went on to this little-known film. You might have heard of it. Great. Star Wars for mm. George Lucas and the rom-com The Goodbye Girl. And then all three movies would all go on to become blockbusters and culturally important. And this... It's those three films that catapulted Elliot from a complete unknown to the most sought-after voiceover talent in Hollywood. So, in an interview, he spoke about his recurring Star Wars work. Initially, he was working for free, and Lucas's indecision on what the promos sounded like. I mean, he said, while we were working on Smokey and the Bandit at the voiceover studio, um, they came to him and said, we got this director who's making us nuts, just driving us crazy. He can't decide how he wants to promote his movie. If you'll work with us on spec, when he makes up his mind on what he wants, we'll see that you get a big piece of the action. So Elliot said, okay. So he, we st- he started working, literally, he said, seven days a week trying to do it. But Lucas couldn't decide on whether he wanted a comedy, whether he wanted an adventure, whether he wanted it dark, whether he wanted it light, whether he wanted romance in in the promo trailer. So he just couldn't decide. So Elliot quickly established himself as a leading voiceover talent. He put a lot of his rapid success down to his experience in radio. He said, radio is a great background because it gave you a sense of time. If you had seven seconds at the beginning of a song to talk it up, you learned to know what seven seconds were. So in 1977, um, the Disney Company's in-house trailer producer, Craig Murray, hired Elliot to provide the voiceover for Disney's theatrical release of 1950's Cinderella you know, when, when they were still doing re-releases to the mm-hmm. theater. And that began an association that would last well into the 2000s. It defined his career, and it cast him as the voice of the company for millions of children and their parents. He would voice theatrical trailers, provide narration for the anthology series The Magical World of Disney. So you probably are hearing his voice now in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, and provide voiceovers for previews and bumpers on home entertainment releases. And his voice is indelibly linked with the phrases and now our feature presentation and experience the magic. And he said, you think about decisions that were made and paths that were chosen and all that sort of thing. And working for Disney, for me, is a defining moment in my life, not just my career, but in my life, because it did what it did is give me this identity, which continues to this day. He added, being the voice of Disney is a wonderful touchstone for my career. If that's the identity that I carry with me for the rest of my life, I wouldn't have it any other way. So he he worked for Walt Disney Entertainment from 1983 until 2008. And that was the time frame that many included to be the renaissance of Walt Disney Animation. And the Aristocats and 101 Dalmatians 2, Patch's London Adventure Special Edition DVDs, were the final trailers that he announced, and both were released in 2008. But, Craig, you'll find this interesting. He provided the voiceover on trailers for several films in the Muppets franchise, including the Muppet Treasure Island. So, 
On the film and television work he's most proud of, Elliot picked the trailer for the inspirational 1981 British sports film Chariots of Fire, which would go on to win four Academy Awards, and he did the promos for the 256th and final episode of CBS's MASH, one of the most watched broadcasts in television history. So, he said, Chariots of Fire, it was totally out of character for me, and the promos that I did that I am most proud of was for the last episode of MASH, which was a heart-tugging but still comedic sort of read. And oh, there's on YouTube, you can actually find all the promos for these and for Disney and, mm-hmm. and all that. There are sites that apparently are devoted to trailers. And so I looked up a few and, and saw them because I wasn't familiar with I didn't remember the Chariots of Fire one or the MASH yeah. one. And I looked them up, and there they were. But, yeah, so that was that's a voice that, uh, you know, next time you pull out one of your DVDs, Craig, you'll definitely hear him. Oh, yeah, no, I, mm-hmm. I, am, I was aware of who he was. Not, uh, like, uh, I would not have done well on trivia if you would have asked me who was the uh, <laughs> voice of Disney trailers, unless you ask me now, then I'll uh, be able to, I'll be able to answer that one easily. But I, I mean... Growing up on Disney movies, growing up with movies in general, you you were able to pick out all the different voices and the trailer voices. And I, I was one of those people who I always tried to replicate the trailer voices too. Not even like, not even just Disney ones, but all of them. So it was it was one of those things. As soon as the news came out, and I just you know I I looked up the first thing I could with that I knew he narrated, and it's. It's like, oh, I should have known that was that was who they were talking about. Like it just it instantly recognizable and, uh, you know, very sad. But it's a he left a legacy that that will literally live on forever as long as trailers are posted online on YouTube, still added to DVDs and Blu-rays and all of that. It will it will it will go on for for a long, long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our condolences go out to uh, mark elliott's family and loved ones mm-hmm. but um he will as you said he will live on yes in, in all of our <laughs> libraries yeah. and memories yeah so. and it uh, might not might not be able to put a face to the name with him but it's you'll definitely you will you will know his voice for the longest longest time mm-hmm. yeah. Well, with Disney California Adventures celebrating its 20th anniversary and Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and Disneyland will still be in its 65th anniversary celebration when it reopens, I thought it would be fun to share what I learned about the Disney theme parks around the world through a few talks I've attended over the years. So a couple are going to be from the Walt Disney Family Museum. One is going to be a talk that was presented um, at uh, UC... Um, yeah, it was USC. And then and then uh, one that was hosted by um, D23 mo- fairly recently. So, uh, and we're going to start out, really, I went into the archives for these. The, these are, the first two are amongst some of the first that I ever took notes for when uh, Connecting with Walt started to air. Oh. So we're going to go back to 
April 16th, 2016, you know, when I, when I was wow. still doing the Disneyland show and all that for um, a talk at the Walt Disney Family Museum hosted by Marty Scalar, the great Marty Scalar, on the International Disney Park. So you're going to, this is when I was writing in my notebook. Yeah, I hadn't graduated to my iPad yet, so you're going to hear me turning pages and things. But this was uh, when Shanghai Disneyland was getting ready to open. And he he talked about how there were three continents of Disney parks, and billions have come to Disney parks around the world. So representing Tokyo Disneyland, Frank Stanek was part of the panel. And for Disneyland Paris, there was Tony Baxter. And for Hong Kong Disneyland, there was Tom Morris, who also worked with um, Tony Baxter at Disneyland Paris. So we started out with um, Frank Stanek. And Tom Jones was the chief project manager, not the singer, but (laughs) for those of you who really go back. And at first they said, well, it was 33 years ago then, but on April 15th, 1983, Tokyo Disneyland opened to the public. And then they showed video to thank Wed and Mapo, who worked on um, Disneyland. And in the video, they had like Frank Stanek, Wayne Johnson, Tom Jones, um, Dirk Klein, Don Edgren, and Jim Thomas, all greats from Imagineering. So... In late 1972, Stanek was the director of research and planning at WED, and they were studying issues from the opening of Walt Disney World. And he got a call to do from WDI, or I should say actually from the Walt Disney Studio, to do a study on the opening of a park in Europe or Japan. So he concluded after he did his study that Japan had a greater chance for success. So, in 1971, uh, a Japanese delegation visited the Walt Disney Studio with the purpose of a park in Japan. And so, a Disney team went to Japan next, and they met with a team um, with Fuji, was the name of the team. And they went to a site outside Tokyo. Now, the Fuji team uh, later pulled out. So, upon their return, Stanek was asked, he asked to do a feasibility study. So in September 1975, Marty Sklar and Frank Stanek went to do a presentation, and Stanek presented a slide presentation. He had it there at the uh, at the museum. He had four Kodak slide carousels of 80 slides each, and and the thing is, Stanek had never been in Japan. So um, anyway, and he showed us some of the slides that he had taken that were in this presentation. Um, now, the Japanese were very receptive, and they said that they that they had the signed contract in a few days. And nine months later, they had a signed memorandum. And it was called Oriental Disneyland in the memorandum, but the project was called Tokyo Disneyland. And so on April 29th, 1979, the agreement was signed. And in September 1980, financing was finalized. And so the groundbreaking ceremony was December 3rd, 1980. And this was a date set by a Buddhist monk. And the, the, the Disneyland and the Walt Disney World ambassadors attended. And then um, they had 200 Wed and then Mapo 
employees in, in Japan to work on construction with support from the United States. And the Oriental Land Company sent cast members to the United States to train. And I remember this because a lot of them were at Disneyland um, during this time. And 200 Disneyland cast members were sent to Tokyo Disneyland to complete the training. And in their fifth year of operation, they reached 17 million um, visitors a year. And that was the goal. And at the time of this presentation, they were hosting 32 million visitors a year. And as of April 7th, 2016, they said 660,559,000 peak guests have visited Tokyo Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea. And in 1983, Stanek returned home because he'd gone to live in Japan for a time as everything's being built and for its opening and administration. And he became a corporate vice president. And then he was tasked to secure a site in Europe for the next park. And it's important to keep in mind that as they were doing all of this and that they were building the first international park, they were also building Epcot Center at the same exact time. So just a, a massive amount of construction and financing going on with the Walt Disney Company during this era. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. So the next step, the next topic was Euro Disneyland, and that was hosted by Tony Baxter. And he said he had a challenge with the name. Oh, oh a funny story, though, I should say. When Carol and I visited uh Tokyo Disneyland 2001 um, the first Eagle Scout in our Boy Scout troop he had who had lived across the street he had um, gone to, he was a lawyer by this time in 2001 and he had gone to uh, Japan to work in a law firm there and because he, he was an international law and so he flew Carol and I out Japan because he said I know Michael wants to see all the parks and will probably never make it out here if I don't bring you all out so we went out there and remember and that was the time 9-11 um, it was right after 9-11 and so it was like when travel had first started again and so um, we went to the park and this is a time when a lot of uh, uh, Westerners weren't traveling to Tokyo to go to Disneyland. So I remember when we were going around and seeing everything and, and it was funny because the, the English, their English of the cast members wasn't as good as we were led to believe it would be. And so when they would listen to us talk, speak in English, they hovered. They just listened every word we were saying and would ask us what the words meant and all that, because they were trying to improve their command of the language. But we went up to some of the characters. Now, of course, the face characters had to look like the ones as they did in the film. So they were from the United States. I remember we went up and met Cinderella. Well, apparently she had not seen someone from the United States in quite a long time, because when she saw us, she put her arms around Carol and just burst out into tears of joy just to see somebody from the United States. And I, I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. So, and then, and then she got back into character again and, and was fine. And by this time we had had somebody who was um, a friend of our friend who he worked 
Oh, he were, he worked, he was like in the confectionery shop or something. This guy had the dirt on everybody. So he'd walk around with us and, and as we were watching the shows, he would tell us who was in a relationship with whom and this and that and the other thing. It was, oh, we had all the gossip. Yeah. By, yeah. by the end of the day, it was, it was <laughs> hilarious. So, um, anyway, on to Euro Disneyland. Well, Tony Baxter said they had a challenge with the name because there are no euros in Europe. So, yeah. And he, he wasn't referring to the money. You know. <laughs> um, Disneyland Paris, uh, they, 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 they linked the, the park to Paris when they renamed it because people uh, visited Paris to see the city. And Eisner insisted that they do some research because the entrance um, was designed originally as a fake hotel. And when you think about it, you think, why would they do that? But of course, Shanghai Disneyland, the entrance is a fake railroad station. So, you know, I guess there's some reasoning for it. But Michael Eisner said, what if it were a real hotel? And that's how that beautiful Disneyland hotel was built as the entrance to the park. Um, and it is beautiful. They, it is, yeah. And they said the culture, climate, um, and advancing technology uh, was a challenge in um, building the park. And in Paris, people like the warmth of Main Street, but they don't buy as much at, from the shops. And they said that, Tony said there's five or six cultures in Europe, so the park had to be visual. So, in the American Frontier area, um, Big Thunder Mountain Railway is in the middle of the land, and it gives it an energy. And uh, the loading area, this is what is so cool, the loading area is on one side of the Rivers of America, and then the Big Thunder Mountain Railway is in the center, so you pass through a tunnel Mm -hmm. when you enter and exit the ride. Which is really neat. Oh, so. yeah. The way in, as you're going to the other side of the island, it's it's fun. It takes you by surprise the first time. I mean, you know what's going to happen because you can see where you get on and where, where the ride actually is. So you know what's going to happen. But on the way back, and we've talked about this before, the amount of speed you pick up as you are making your way back under the water, it's like... It is oh, it is so so thrilling. It's why it's mm-hmm. my favorite version of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and it's one of my favorite roller coasters ever. I I only got to ride it three four times, and it was not not enough. I could have ridden that yeah. thing all day. I know. I agree with you. It is my also my favorite version of, of Big Thunder, and and Big Thunder is one of my favorite roller coasters. And but. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's impressive, and the theming is wonderful, and it gives it it gives the land a cool kinetic energy to see it sitting there in the middle of the river. Mm-hmm. So, um, the the haunted mansion is named Phantom Manor. It's not pristine as Walt wanted. Tony said that was because it had to speak visually to many cultures. Um, there's no Tom Sawyer Island because it is American, and so that's why uh, there's. Pirates of the Caribbean with a large pirate ship in front to communicate what it is. 
And so that's why on the island in the middle, there's Big Thunder rather than Tom Sawyer Island also, because felt that they wouldn't know who Tom Sawyer was in Europe. The castle, and, and we've talked about this several times, they were up against a fantasy of castles in Europe. Um, now, Frank Armitage, who was an artist on Sleeping Beauty, drew the castle. He based it on Ivan Earle's art. And it's like a tapestry to make guests feel comfortable. And inside it has grand arches like Ivan Earl's trees. And and the coolest thing is there is a dragon in the dungeon, which I visited several times when I was there. Now, it's a small world. It's its facade is multicolored to contrast against the gray sky. And then, of course, they famously did that in California's version. That did not go over well. And so they that was not popular. So that they did ultimately restore it to its original white and gold facade. But um, the, the Paris version was the first to have a scene of the United States. And it's a ra- rather elaborate scene. And I think it's very well done. Um, Space Mountain is based on the film Earth to the Moon. And it has a, a catapult lift. And that blasts you in, which is very cool. It has three loops. It was the first to have onboard music, the first of the Space Mountains. And Tom Delaney designed um, that. So I did not ride on Space Mountain. The line was just huge. Yeah, and I did, but it was, uh, as I believe it is permanent now, the Hyperspace Mountain, which I think it's... It's awesome. It's uh, the best version of Hyperspace Mountain with Star Wars because of the looping and stuff. It actually feels like a true dogfight in Star Wars versus the one in Disneyland, which, you know, has the moments of perfection. But, you know, it just feels like Space Mountain with some Star Wars thrown in. This feels more uh, looped all together. But I wish I would have gotten to experience the classic version. But as much, much far too late <laughs> on yeah. getting to see that one. So Tony Baxter said that um, Disneyland was the most charming, is the most charming in his opinion of all the parks, Our the one in California. Walt Disney World is the most spectacular, and Disneyland Paris is the most beautiful. So Craig, would you agree with that? Yeah, a thousand percent I would agree with that. Just, <laughs> uh, I, I thought the entire park was gorgeous. Uh, obviously, there's some areas and not as much but um yeah just just breathtakingly stunning so okay i agree it's gorgeous it's definitely a park i I want to visit again someday when they're done with all their expansion yeah and that's i i feel like i feel like Fantasyland had some construction going on when i was there so it was a little stilted tomorrowland felt half closed maybe because of the time of year I was there, but, um, uh, and kind of, I, 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 there definitely was some gaps, but overall, like I felt one of the most positive things I can say, especially again, in talking about the beauty of Disneyland Paris, uh, I could, I was happy walking around, even not experiencing things. Um, and, still enjoying how beautiful the park was on its own, like a true park instead of just a pretty theme park. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's a huge compliment. I agree. Yeah. And um, now I've been Hong Kong Disneyland. And Marty Scar said, we give Jay Rasulo all the credit for not giving us enough money to build this park. This is when Marty just said what he wanted to say. <laughs> it was at that, that part of his life. <laughs> so Now, Tom Morris said that to get local community up to speed on what they were going to do, they produced a monthly television show called The Magic of Disneyland, hosted by Tom Young. And Wing Chow was the development executive of um, of the project. And uh, it was on Lantern Island, which was facing, uh, or Lanto Island, I should say, facing um, Victoria Harbor was the site that was selected. Um, There was no flat area to build a park, so landfill was done on the site. And it was all selected based on feng shui. and, And everything was situated based on feng shui. It was the first time... Disneyland, the original Disneyland elements were used in the making of a park. And Marty said you got an eerie feeling as if you were watching Disneyland being built. Um, the castle was topped one year before the park opened. Landscape was very much in the style of Bill Evans. Um, you know, he said that th- things are familiar that yet somewhat different and that's absolutely true i agree uh, the plaza inn is a chinese restaurant and uh and, and um the and then the music is played with um chinese instruments and all that uh, the original jungle cruise uh, station and tahitian is uh, they use the original uh plans for the jungle cruise station from disneyland the tahitian terrace is a quick service snack stand um, they, they included the old global van line buildings uh, on Main, Main Street, USA, that's gone from Disneyland. Uh, the Jungle Cruise has a fire and water grand finale, which is quite spectacular. And then the, the opening day was um, s- September 12, 2005. And there is a steam engine there on their railroad named after Frank Wells. And Tom Delaney completely reimagined um, their Tomorrowland there. And I love uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. It has gone through a lot of changes. They've done a lot of expansion. They're, they're, most of their, the original Tomorrowland's gone. It's becoming the Avengers campus there. And, um, you know, they added on their, um, They've added on a lot of other attractions in a Toy Story land. They have a very charming uh, It's a Small World there that's based on ours. They only have one dark ride in their fantasy land, which is Winnie the Pooh, which I don't understand. And, um, and, and of course, the big thing is recently was in the news is that they've completely rebuilt the castle. And it looks quite spectacular. And it's, you know, devoted to all the princesses. So, um, yeah, uh, I would love to go back to Hong Kong Disneyland because we got caught in a typhoon there. And so uh, we missed a whole day of just touring Hong Kong and the park. And so uh, I would like to spend more time there. 
And then finally, it was Shanghai Disneyland. Um, Bob Weiss, uh, he started in graphic, in graphics, designing signs for Tokyo Disneyland, and he moved to show design. Uh, now is president of Walt Disney Imagineering, um, chief Imagineer of Shanghai Disneyland, and president of um, of Walt D- D- Disney Imagineering. Um, was his role at the time. Uh, the negotiations to build the park took 10 to 15 years. The park has two hotels, a lakefront. It's a 20-minute ride from downtown Shanghai. Um, his first experience in Disney was international with Tokyo Disneyland. And then early in the project, Bob Iger said, and we can all, we all remember this, authentically Disney, distinctly Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they've Included the Chinese culture and food in the park. The overwhelming majority of Imagineers are Chinese who have never been to a Disney park. And the Disneyland Hotel, which is also spectacular, is across the lake from the park. And it has a fireworks viewing deck also over there. They have a Toy Story Hotel. They have a, a downtown Disney that's uh, retail and dining. But they have the Walt Disney Theater there, which is a full Broadway house. And they premiered The Lion King in Mandarin. And when I went there, it had just closed. And they 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 had no plans for introducing a new show in there at the time. Main Street, I loved. It's Mickey Avenue. All the stores and restaurants are designed as if the proprietors are Disney characters. I know um, I spent an extra day after our tour was over in Shanghai Disneyland and I spent I think half the day just on Mickey Avenue looking at everything, all the little details every shop tells a story it's really remarkable their hub is enormous, but it has attractions in it. It has a beautiful Fantasia carousel. Um, you know, all the figures are characters from Fantasia. And it has the Dumbo attraction in it. And then there are, uh, there are scores of murals by, uh, of Chinese zodiacs. Um, there's, and there, and with, you know, Disney characters around, there's a lot of murals in the park. Um, there's a restaurant in the hub, and it's uh, has symbols of it's symbolic of being in China. They did historic research as a collage of six Chinese styles of architecture. It's named the Wandering Moon. We ate there; it was very good. Um, the castle has Disney and Chinese ornamentation on it, and um, Fantasyland has a as a greener, richer interior with a waterway and a boat ride that goes through the castle. And you get to see little scenes of iconic scenes of Disney films. Some come alive. I don't know. I felt like they could have done more with it, but it was still really cute. Um, all the rides are updated. Like they had a new flying rig for Peter Pan. Um, they have Adventure Isle that replaced um, Frontierland. They have the Roaring Rapids ride with an audio animatronic dragon. I don't think it was open when we were there. Then they have Treasure Cove, a whole land based on pirates. So, and the thing is, there was no benchmark for pirates in China. Um, they have a, a large um, restaurant in there that overlooks, that looks into Pirates of the Caribbean. And we ate there. The food was good, but we were rushed because we um, had to be somewhere at a certain time. So we 
didn't order. We, we ordered and just like chowed down our food and had to go. We drove the poor server crazy because we all needed individual checks and yeah. oh, poor guy. Um, uh, there, there's a huge pirate stunt show. Very well done. Very clever. I have no idea what they say in it. Um, the, but the pirates of the Caribbean attraction itself is like none other. It's based on the films and it had one of the cool effects was not working at the time, uh, which is a, a signature effect of when one of the characters changes in um Captain Jack Sparrow changes from you know human form into the uh skeleton form and back like right before your eyes wasn't working properly when we were there but everything else was and it was it's an amazing amazing attraction and the boats can be the, the boats can be sped up slowed down they spin and it was created by um industrial lights and magic their Tomorrowland, I don't know. I wasn't as excited about it. I don't know why Tomorrowlands all have to look so industrial and all that. But they did have a lot of trees and things in it. But it's inspired by Tron. Of course, it has that Tron roller coaster that that you guys are going to be getting in the Magic Kingdom. And they also have Buzz Lightyear. They have Stitch in there. They have a jetpack ride. So the rest of the rides are, attractions are really uninspired, I think. It, but Tomorrowland does have two levels. So which makes it really interesting. You know, that I do like that, that it's not all flat. And when we were in the talk, they were talking about how a week before this talk, they did the first fireworks test and that there will be a castle projection show. This is before we knew what that meant. So they talked about being able to do 3D imaging of an attraction allows them to design shows much easier. And um, they can build the buildings to and, um, and these shows to meet the needs of the attraction as well. And... Uh, they went to live in, but then we went live to Shanghai and we talked to the team because the park was almost ready to hand, be handed over to operations. So we talked, uh, so, um, Dirk um, Beckering then showed, they had some drone footage and he did, he did the architect and the project images and things like that and some of the buildings were so large that they used drones for quality control and to show off the park and um and luke i think his name was lula luca chen she did the beautiful artists concepts and the murals um for the park so let's see what else did they say Lizzie Frisk, I believe my writing here says, she carried over the Disney legacy to the Chinese. She communicated the legacy of design, a legacy of Disney, the Imagineering team. These are the people that were in this live feed. Then there was somebody whose first name was Chong, and I didn't catch the last name because it was Chinese. Uh, this person did research to understand the Chinese market and helped the United States team to understand Chinese stories and why their stories don't have happily ever after endings. And the Chinese didn't queue. 
It's not part of their culture. So there, there are a lot of railings in the park. And the operations team has been working with behavioral scientists and public safety for seven years um, on sort of organizing the park and the people. And uh, when we were there, they weren't totally successful in in instructing the Chinese guests what it means to line up in a queue. But they were making progress. A question was asked, are there any plans for an audio animatronic Walt? And Marty said, as hard as it was to write for Walt, I'd hate to write that speech. <laughs> he said, we would need to discuss it with the family, and it would be difficult to do something that encompassed his life and accomplishments. And I think that's probably the final period on that mm-hmm. <laughs> concept there. And and they said one of their challenges was is that the Chinese knew Snow, Snow White, but then they didn't know any other Disney films until the more recent ones. So that they they had they were showing them on Chinese television, and but also it had a big impact on what characters would be in the park as well. So Mickey's costume has a traditional cut and design. And, uh, again, it's, um, 80% Chinese. Uh, the cuisine is 80% Chinese and Asian. The souvenirs are all Chinese. They had a, they have a great Tarzan acrobatic show. Uh, they, with, um, Phil, it's told with Phil Collins music and Chinese acrobats. It was fantastic. Really well done. And Marty Sklar said that Disneyland is his favorite park because it's the only park Walt walked in. It has a charm because it's smaller. It has intimate spaces. Everything that happens in all the parks emanates from Disneyland. In Disneyland, you get the feeling something really started here. So That was the end of the talk. So. It sounds like a good one. It was. It was really well done. And this was before, thanks to Dreams Unlimited Travel and Adventures by Disney, I was able to go to old parks because we had that special trip that ABD did for us. And then Adventures by Disney, you know, Kevin and John, they did the Tokyo add-on for us as well. So we got to see all the Asian parks on that trip. And it was a remarkable trip. And we did several episodes, I believe, on that trip, didn't we, Craig? Yeah, we did. We did a lot on it, but uh, that mm-hmm. that was nice. It, it you kind of had an interesting uh, pre pre uh, appreciation for the parks before going into it. I mean, I know you read a lot about them, and obviously you you knew a, a great deal, but to to hear it in that that kind of way before you got to experience it, I feel like that just adds an extra extra level of yeah. uh, value to it. So uh, very very cool. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was nice that, uh, it's nice to hear Marty again, mm-hmm. to talk about Marty again. So that was one of the reasons I, I dug this one out of my, my old notebooks. The next one is also a talk from the Walt Disney Family Museum. It's August 19th, 2017. It's the Ivan Earl Influence on Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland Paris, hosted by Tony Baxter and Tom Morris. And Tony Baxter, well, you probably heard his story. We've talked about it, and you probably heard him talk about it in presentations. He started out at Disneyland by scooping ice cream 
Adam Carnation Plaza, out of Main Street, USA. And he was a Disney legend in 2013 and as, and the executive producer of Euro Disney. Tom Morris started at Disneyland by selling balloons and he designed, um, the Euro Disney Fantasyland and the castle. And so Tony Baxter talked, he talked about how important the images of what you see as a child are important because he said as a 12 year old, what he saw influenced his life because in 1959 for him, it was the dragon fight in scene in Sleeping Beauty. Because on television, you could watch the, on television, also you could watch the construction of Disneyland and the production of Sleeping Beauty. He said those things influenced the course of his life. The centerpiece of Disneyland was a castle, and Walt named it after Sleeping Beauty to promote the film. So, look at that. One of the first things was an IP right there. So, Walt asked Ivan Earl to design scenes for the interior of the castle, and but this was still two years before the film. Shirley Temple opened it. We've talked about that on the show before. It was a B ticket, which would cost 20 cents, but you also got a program of the film. And his scenes of of are on the original issue of the DVD for Sleeping Beauty. You want to see those Ivan Earl scenes yeah. in there because they were replaced, you know, and all that. Um, they were asked to reconstruct the scenes in the castle in time for the Blu-ray release. Because if you recall from our previous episodes on the history of Disneyland, it, the interior of the castle was closed for several years, and it had to be all um, sort of reimagined and all that to make it um, make us so guests could walk through it again. They had to do some reconstruction in there. Uh, then it was time to design the Disneyland Paris castle, and they started to look at Herb Ryman's sketches that he had done for the castle. But there was pressure to build a castle similar to the one at Walt Disney World and Tokyo, and the construction plans had been updated for that. But Tom Morris wanted a more charming castle, and he took photos of all the castles within a few hours' drive of Disneyland Paris, and all had similarities to the Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland castles. So his argument was, so why build something familiar? And Tony said the myth that Sleeping Beauty Castle is all based on New Swanson Castle. Um, he said only the dormer windows in the towers are based on that castle. And he went through a whole thing about the different chateaus and other other structures that that castle is based on, the original castle. Dick Nunes wanted the Disneyland Paris castle to be the Walt Disney World castle only stretched. And Tony Baxter said he was horrified. <laughs> so Herb Ryman's concept was Sleeping Beauty Castle with a rose window on a hill. And Joe Rohde wanted a winter-summer castle. And Tom Delaney, uh, or Tim Delaney, designed a futuristic castle. And it was a castle of discovery. And that, and they were, they were showing the concept art for all of these um, during the presentation. And that came close to being approved. So what would have happened is Fantasyland would have been flipped with Discoveryland in that case. 
So Tom um, Morris was admiring all this work, but he just felt it wasn't on point. So Brian uh, Jowers designed a castle on a hill that was inspirational. And then Mont St. Michel inspired Tom. So he researched storybook castles and did a board putting together all the Disney storybook castles, and all of them were on a hill. So Tom and Tony agreed that this castle had to be on a hill. And then they had to decide whose castle would it be and how would it look. So they focused on Sleeping Beauty because that tale is of French origin. And they looked at all of the art of Ivan Earle's um, inspiration for the film and the castle and all that. And then they looked at Ivan Earle's um, castle itself. Every sketch of Ivan Earle's castle made the cast that he did made the castle look different. And uh, and then there are some rules uh, about castles. A Disney castle must be vertical. It must be shaped like a Christmas tree. So they looked at Ivan Earle's concept art, and it was very uh, lyrical, slender, and beautiful. This is why some of the um, old-time Imagineers, even some new Imagineers, don't care for the Shanghai Disneyland castle because it's not that that um, Christmas tree shape. Yeah, so um, it's, it's boxy and goes straight up. Yeah, I was going to say clunky. Is a yeah. Description too. Yeah, I, I agree. It's not my favorite of the castles. Now, luckily for the redesigned Hong Kong Disneyland castle, it is that Christmas tree shape. Yeah, so. it's. I mean, and that shape provides a level of familiarity and also elegance, uh, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Uh, that, that slender shape just. Uh, there, there's something about it that's just it, it's well, visually appealing. It gives it a grandeur as it reaches to the sky. That's why a lot of the great cathedrals are in yep. that shape as they, it reaches towards the heavens. Yep, that's yeah. a, a perfect, perfect correlation. So Tom Morris went back to the silhouette of Mont Saint Michel and he sketched it and gave it definition. And so he started on the hill in rock work and then the details of the castle, but he kept Herb Ryman's rose window. And then they created the concept art used in marketing and on the opening day commemorative ticket, and I actually have the the poster hanging in my study right here behind me, too, of it. And then they began building the model. The only guides, though, that they had for this castle was the VHS tape of the film, um, photos of the background from the film, and the Art of Animation book. You would have thought they would have had a ton more stuff at their disposal, but they didn't. (laughs) Um, And then they, they needed a dragon who was inside the hill, and they didn't want the hill to overpower the castle. So Bill Evans worked with them to, on the hill so that it could be um, mowed and maintained. Skip Lang worked to create the rock molds and the texturing to maintain the Ivan Earl look and the comfortableness of it. Then there was the issue of the trees. They couldn't use topiary trees. They 
planted the trees, um, but they underestimated the fertility of the French soil. The trees grew fast, and it turned out they were more difficult to place. And they grew so fast that they became out of scale with the castle very quickly. So after a storm in 2000, some of the trees were damaged and they were removed, giving it more of the Ivan Earl look. So they have them, um, they have to sort of thin them out every 10 to 15 years to maintain that look. And then in the architecture, since Sleeping Beauty is the sleeping woman of the woods, they decided to have the columns look organic like trees. Um, all ornaments are icons from the forest, acorns, leaves, and squirrels. And Paul Chapman of Goddard and Gibbs of London came out of retirement to design the Sleeping Beauty stained glass windows for the castle. And as you walk around, you have to walk in a particular order, downstairs and upstairs. They tell, they tell the story story of Sleeping Beauty. They're magnificent. The whole castle's magnificent. I spent a lot of time just looking at the interior of the castle. Um, the Christmas shop in the castle has the Ivan Earl style filigree. They also um, wanted a Merlin shop in it because they wanted magic. And that leads to the dungeon. So um, it was built on a budget uh, the dungeon part of it, but attractions wouldn't give the dragon attraction status, but it ended up being the third most popular attraction in the park. So the castle has real slate tiles and marble balustrades because it's cheaper and it lasts longer. All the finials are based on the forest. The tower, when it was built, was off half a degree and they had the fight with the contractor um, to correct it. So. And they also had to work with uh, a hotel at one end where the train station would be and then the castle at the other end. And then Main Street USA said it was an improved version of Walt Disney World's version of Main Street. And there are some void spaces in the castle so that um, rooms could be added in the future. And that was pretty much that presentation. Another fun one. Yeah, it was. And I just love that castle. So it's yeah. gorgeous. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one everybody, every Disney fan, if they can, should see. It's a park everyone should see. So. Okay, our next talk is August 20th, 2020. This is a theme park association, Tia. It was at University of Southern California. They presented an evening with Tom Morris and Tony Baxter. It was hosted by Natalie Sinegler. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing her name, and I apologize if you're listening there, Natalie. I couldn't read my writing. <laughs> so, um, so she hosted it and asked the question. So her first question was, what was the first attraction you worked on? Tony Baxter said he got to work with Claude Coates, who was working on the submarine ride, um, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at Walt Disney World, which was right up his alley. And he continued this interest in creating Discovery Bay. Um, he went to Florida at the age of 22. He had never left home before. He was put up in his own apartment. And this was when, you know, his mother still made his bed at this time. So he really was just thrown out on his own there, moving to Florida. He then worked on the Snow White attraction and designed the rebar spider web that kept guests from stealing the old hag's apple. 
At 23, he returned to Burbank, and now he had field experience. So he worked on models that led to um, the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad being constructed. Tom Morris said his first job was in a world of motion. A lot of it was grunt work for the first few weeks. He worked on a pagoda and a Greek temple for the opening scene. Claude Coates was the art director, and he suddenly realized that one scene hadn't been worked on. So Tom Morris was tasked with building the models for the hot air balloon scene. And then um, he worked on Journey to Imagination that came on that online for planning and Tony assigned Tom to work on it. And that was a two to three year project. The next question is with the advent of of the international parks, how has it affected Disneyland? All the questions, because this is Southern California, all connect back to Disneyland. Um Tony Baxter said Disneyland came from Walt's mind and how large it should be, how wide the path should be. Its size provided a level of comfort. So he said when he and Tom worked on Disneyland Paris, that was their fourth Magic Kingdom park. And they wanted it to have the feel of the original Disneyland. So if somebody wanted a 40-foot pathway, he gave them two 20-foot pathways. And he was told to cover Main Street, but Parisians love the sun because they get so little. And he didn't want to cover it like at Tokyo Disneyland. So they built a Main Street to the width and length of Disneyland, but then they built two beautiful 20-foot wide arcades on either side. Um, They had an issue with the castle because there are real castles. Uh, nearby, they had to walk the line between what Parisians like about America and what sticks in their throat about America. So, in everything that they did, um, they said everything they did combined French art, uh, mosaic style, and Disney style with Ivan Earl's style in designing the castle. And he said, now Disneyland Paris is the number one attraction in Europe. Tom Morris said that they overestimated the food and they had um, sort of more meals for their sit-down restaurants. And they sort of go through this cycle when a park first opens, everyone wants to see the park. So they go to counter service because they don't want to waste time eating. So after guests, after the first few visits, people demanded sit-down restaurants. And so then the food became more sophisticated. They said in the early days of Walt Disney World, people lined up for the Skyway and ignored the Tudor Mansion because they couldn't see the attraction. So after time, they discovered the Haunted Mansion and then less people rode the Skyway. So Tony Baxter said um, Disneyland Paris was the first park without ticket books. So people rode the train and other attractions they could see. But Tony fought for ticket books for the first one to two years to force guests to discover the attractions. I thought that was interesting. The next question is, how do you incorporate IPs into the attraction? That's intellectual properties, basically the movies. Um, Tom Morris, you have to show and not tell. 
He said the IP doesn't have to be a recreation of the film. That's called a book report attraction. Mr. Toad is a good example. He brought that concept to Carsland and Radiator Springs. It's a sequel to the film because the town has bounced back. He likes to, the ride to be experiential and not a narrative because more non-English speakers are going to the parks. Tony Baxter said on Disneyland's opening day, all the key attractions were based on IPs. Fantasyland was all IPs. Adventureland, uh, the Jungle Cruise was based on the True Life Adventures African Lion film. The Matterhorn was based on the film Third Man on the Mountain. The Rocket to the Moon was based on the Disneyland Television Man in Space series. Uh, Tony Baxter said the uh, 80s films, the Aristocats, Robin Hood, and the Fox and the Hound didn't give you places you can go to like Peter Pan. So that's why we don't see attractions based on those films. He said when they were bankrupt of IPs, Tony Baxter said we needed to partner with George Lucas. And Ron Miller said fine. And he invited them all to Silverado um, Winery to discuss it. And Diane Disney Miller uh, served them all lunch. So even though Michael Eisner loved to take credit for bringing George Lucas in and, you know, introducing Star Tours, it was actually Ron Miller that made the first um, steps towards this. Um, Tony Baxter said Star Wars was transformative, but it couldn't be an experience of Luke Skywalker in third person. Guests needed to do something. He wanted hyperspace and the trench scene in it. So first conceived it as a giant roller coaster, but it wasn't uh, practical and thought, what, what if we can't do it? Then he was told about simulators, and they redesigned them into what there is today. And guests thought, though, that Tony Baxter was the devil incarnate because he was replacing a non-IP attraction with an IP attraction. But the old attraction was for the 70s, and Star Tours was for the 80s. So, And, of course, that replaced the old um, Adventures Through Inner Space mm-hmm. attraction. If the ride is not based in an IP, if it's good, it will generate IPs, like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad generated Marvel comic books, and Pirates of the Caribbean is the most successful of, in generating IPs. Tom Morris said most Animal Kingdom attractions are not associated with IPs. He said synergy is a two-way street. When building It's a Small World in Hong Kong Disneyland, they were adding Disney characters. There was a great debate over which characters should be included. Tony Baxter said Efteling, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, Efteling Park in the Netherlands is a sweet park that is better than Disney. It was themed entertainment winter the, the year before this talk. They have characters specifically created for the park, so you have to walk in to figure out what's, you have to work on um, figuring out what's going on. The only IPs are loosely based on fairy tales. Um, Indiana Jones was Tony Baxter's favorite adventure film, and he loved working on that attraction. Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, there's no IP, was built in response to guest desires for more thrilling attractions, but they, they had to keep it in the spirit of Disneyland. 
Journey to Imagination created Figment, who has a life beyond the original attraction. People can identify with Figment. He would uh, come out of retirement. Uh, th- and this is the one statement that you saw on Twitter and the interwebs. And it came from this talk. Tony Baxter said he would come out of retirement to redo that attraction. And that was everywhere on the Internet the following day. Yeah, so. it, it was. So it got a lot of people's <laughs> hopes up for uh, something that will never, ever, ever happen. And uh, I, I wish, but let, let's be real. It's Well, Figment sells a lot of merchandise, though. So, you know, if if they redo it and... In, in, in the in, in, with the hope that he can generate more merchandise sales, they might. You know what? I'm going to challenge that idea in that they put Figment on a lot of merchandise and people are buying the merchandise. I don't know if it's necessarily because Figment is the staple of it, but you know, when when you're producing merchandise and and you throw them on there and it's all that's available. And people want to buy it because they want to remember their time that they're at Walt Disney World. You're not really giving them a, a total choice, and, mm. but that's just my my perspective on it. I do think there's there is a massive fan base that wants Figment in a better way, including including me. But uh, they, it's also um, you know it's it's the stuff that they make with Figment on it that isn't branded to a festival at Epcot that I feel like ends up sitting on the shelves for so so long like uh-huh. like when the Figment Funko Pop came out on the 35th anniversary of Epcot you know lines out the wazoo on day 1 and you couldn't get it for for a while and then when they all finally came back in stock they just sat there collecting dust for <laughs> Oh, how sad! Yeah, it's uh, it's pigments best when you pair them with a Epcot festival. Uh, Same same feeling I have with Orange Bird in a way. Like on its on its own, Orange Bird sometimes doesn't fly off the shelves right away. But then after some time, it it becomes a little bit more stagnant. But pair it with a festival, and let's go Orange Bird crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't. I still hold out hope that. The gr- the grandeur of Journey to Imagination will be restored in some way. Good. That's yeah. that's what we need more hope in the world. <laughs> okay. The next question: Examples of when technology helped a ride and when it hurt a ride. So Tony Baxter said, "Star Tours gave you the feeling of being in a movie, in a two D experience, but you can't put in ten of these because it dilutes the value of the attraction." He said. Um, Trans, it was a transformative moment in design because it was a ride vehicle that felt like you were out of control, which led to the design of the Indiana Jones ride vehicle. And it was programmable for different experience. It got a Thea Award. It was, but then it was mimicked by Spider-Man, Transformers, and the Harry Potter attractions. Um, Peter Pan, he, it, now this, you'll find this one interesting. Craig. Peter Pan, he said, was ruined by technology with the addition of panel monitors for the clouds in London, water on Neverland, and it's less um, magical than the original simple effects because people had to use their imagination more. The simple effects felt limitless and more imaginative. 
What do you think of that, Craig? I, I I'll take I'll take his word for it. I don't know if I a hundred percent agree with it. Um, but yeah, I I'm I, I'm not sure if I totally agree, but I I respect the opinion. Yeah, I yeah I like the upgrades to Peter Pan. I have a feeling we're going to be seeing more at some point. Um, but um, I. Yeah. I like the uh, I liked the additions to yeah, it. Yeah, and I, I feel like my issue with some additions like that, uh, technologically speaking, is it's. I think it works really well when it's in place for a long time. If it's not upgraded, if it's not upgraded when the technology becomes out of date, then that's when it it really looks bad and i would prefer an original um an original you know less technologically advanced uh, creation uh, approach to everything but uh, right now that's not the case so that's where i'm, I'm struggling to to really agree with the take mm-hmm. on it but I, I i understand where he's coming from now, Tom Morris said, um, technology can break the spell of an attraction. He said when he returned to Burbank, he had nothing to do and was worried about getting laid off. And he'd always wanted to synchronize music to a roller coaster and thought Space Mountain would be good. So he used his Walkman and he, and he, um, to sync several playlists and played it with executives and they liked it. So he tested it on Casey Jr. and Space Mountain in Disneyland Paris. And some thought it would be information overload for guests, but he argued that the company was founded on synchronizing music and movement, beginning with Steamboat Willie, and it makes attractions more magical. So he is a believer in adding new things to existing attractions. Then Superstar Limo at DCA, that was an example of of a negative. The original concept was blown when Princess Diana was killed. He said they killed the magic by putting screens in the cars, and it took guests' attention off the attraction. I I don't know if that's the only thing that, that... killed that attraction yeah so, i mean uh, it was just bad from the beginning exactly i, I mean i've only seen the videos obviously <laughs> i think uh i think the screens you know it's just another aspect of what went wrong but not what went wrong there was there was a lot more to it that that really butchered it yeah and then the question, how will the immersive theme land trend in theme park design affect Disneyland? Tony Baxter, does he said he doesn't think that Galaxy's Edge or Pandora is all that different from New Orleans Square. He said they did concept work on Harry Potter for Disneyland. It was an immersive book that readers thought they could be one of those characters. Diagon Alley at Universal, he said, is an immersive place that people want to visit. He said, same as Galaxy's Edge and Pandora, but the characters aren't as compelling as the Harry Potter characters. He said, when people said they couldn't afford to build Indiana Jones, he said, we can't afford not to, because he understood that Disney needed to uh, be cutting edge and provide these immersive experiences. And Tony Baxter doesn't think attractions based on films um, have the longevity, though, that other attractions do. 
Tom Morris said there are different levels of storytelling and immersiveness. It depends where you are because your mind is in different places when walking to the tram, when buying your tickets and going on star tours, Pirates of the Caribbean, Galaxy's Edge. Not everything needs to be 100% immersive. He said Disneyland is a smorgasbord of different ideas and places. There's nothing 100% perfect in storytelling. We just accept that there's a treehouse next to New Orleans Square. He said, we just accept it. He doesn't think that Disneyland was the right place for Galaxy's Edge and that it works better at Walt Disney World. He's all for tweaking attractions to make them more imaginative, have better characters and storytelling. And then they said, how do you experience a new attraction and evaluate the quality or experience? Tom Moore says he looks for feeling. He immediately starts exploring. How is it laid out? Are you enticed to go through streets, uh, portals, to the buildings of character that you don't see every day? Um, is it beautifully landscape? Uh, does it convince you you're in a beautiful, comfortable, endless space? Tony Baxter says he tries to see it as a child, which gets, you know, harder because he knows the um, stories. He says you have to free yourself from the analysis and just enjoy it. He designs it He designs it for the 20th ride. Why will people wait 45 minutes in queue for an attraction they do every year? He said in a new land or attraction, does it make you feel you're not in Disneyland anymore? And then what's here that's immersive, life-fulfilling, has technology that can't be duplicated in your home. It's creative to remain valid. It's created to remain valid for years and years. He said it's why 3D films aren't working in the parks anymore because everyone has this in their house. So next question was, how does the fan base affect the parks? Tom Morris says, keeps everyone on their toes and honest. Uh, executives didn't realize fans were as passionate about the parks and attractions. It's a perspective that needs to be integrated into our thinking. There's, uh, let's see. And then he said, then there's the lunatic fringe. Don't change anything at Disneyland. And others who say, rip anything out, because Walt said it would never be finished. You have to be careful with Disneyland, he said, because it is a national treasure. Tony Baxter sees three phases of Disneyland fandom. Walt was the first fan. He controlled everything, and he was excited about it. After his death, it was the publicity department who doled out what they wanted, um, what they wanted to the public. He said, now they're social media influencers. He said, a ride opens and in a few minutes, a 4K ride through is on the internet. So Craig, there you are. You're phase three. I'm famous. Yeah, you are. <laughs> he said, Disney is slowly coming to understand this and they're starting to release their own 4K ride throughs. He said, fans are creating virtual ride-throughs of extinct or previous versions of attractions. And he said, Disney should be celebrating this and learning how to accept it and work with it. Yeah. That was, I, the, that was the end of that. I don't know if... Um, I, I think Disney still has a, a long way to go with uh, 
releasing uh, good quality versions of their rides. Uh, you know, there's there's some some instances where I feel like they they do a, a great job of releasing, but like only when it's really old. Like one of the things that still sticks out in my mind is on the very first Pirates of the Caribbean Blu-ray and sorry DVD even before that. Uh, they had an awesome, awesome float through of classic Pirates of the Caribbean. And like, that was amazing to see and, and really good quality. And, uh, like, I, I wish more of that would actually see the light of day because I, I know the decision with Disney is still, well, we don't want to ruin the magic. We want to, we want people to have a reason why they need to come here and still see it. And they don't quite understand yet that people are still going to come anyways, even if you have the best 4k videos out there on online, on, on releases, wherever people are still going to show up because it's just not the same as watching it, but it's a nice, it's a nice in between that keeps you satisfied until that next vacation, and in some ways motivates you to get back sooner so you can relive mm-hmm. it again. I mean, that's literally, that's literally how Disney on YouTube has has become what it is because people, people just they're they're they need to quench that thirst to get back in the parks when they're not there. And I wish Disney would actually adapt to this even more. I'm happy making it my job, but you know, we don't have the access and the perfect uh, abilities that Disney does to like attach, uh, (laughs) attach, you know, actual rigs to these attractions to make sure they get the best shots and such Mm -hmm. and control lighting. And sometimes even using onboard lighting to make sure that it lights up, every every perfect aspect so it can see more so uh i i hope i hope they can can move forward with that one day and and embrace embrace technology embrace the internet embrace ride throughs a little bit more because so that that would be a golden age if that would happen that would be yeah all right well you know i think that i've shared a lot that's a lot to take in and mull over so I hope you enjoyed this look back at, at hearing Imagineers talk about these parks, and it'll get you excited for your next visit to uh, to your your closest theme park or or when you can travel to the international parks. But I always love hearing the thought processes that went into their design. Yeah, it's fascinating, and uh, it. It really, you know, it, there's no one here who's saying that Imagineering's lazy and, and unimaginative. Uh, it's it, no one, no one in their right mind would say it. Some projects seem like they come out that way, but uh, they're within even the projects that don't come out the right way. I can only imagine how many hundreds of mundane meetings going over the smallest details and concepts end up still happening. And, uh, it's these these projects are all really 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 taken seriously even even when they don't come out right and uh, it's it's fascinating to hear how they come together and especially when it's yeah. a when it's a success story and it came out and uh, and it's it, it almost becomes an instant classic and is still loved to this day. Oh yeah, it is amazing the research that they do and it, it's and, and to hear their process and even like you know when I talked about. When Tom Morris was talking about how he used Mont Saint Michel for an inspiration of Disneyland Paris Castle, he actually 
there. He did, he had the silhouette of Mont Saint Michel. He projected it and then he did the drawing over it to show how he drew the actual castle to, to design the Disneyland Paris castle. I, awesome. it, it was fascinating. So, um, and I, I love yeah. the last thing I'll say about it. I love learning more about the process too because the one thing you the more creative projects you work on and the more you realize that the elements that you have to adapt to when making creative projects it can be adapted to to other aspects of your life too and uh it's not just like you know the 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 process you learn to how to make decisions to build a theme park, you can take those decisions and apply them to other aspects of your life in different mm-hmm. ways. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a discipline like anything else. Uh, it's, it's you, you have procedures that you have to go through and, and decision-making and, it doesn't have to just be limited to well it only works for this i can't i can't take this and apply it to something else the lessons you learn there can almost always be applied in other ways so i love i love using it too as a way for me to say how can i take what they did when designing theme parks and use it with what i do for my career or even just in my personal life with things I do and say, how can, how can I use that as inspiration, as motivation for, for what I'm going to create? And, uh, it's, it's really, really helpful for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now let's find out who will rise to the top in this week in Disney history. Okay, well, this week we have Mary Jo coming back. You know, two weeks ago she tied with Craig. Last week she came in second to Craig. So she's she's back this week, and I, I know I know she's going to come out ahead. I'm so. going to try. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So welcome back, Mary Jo. Thank you. All right, I'm going to run through the rules again for any listeners who may not have um, tuned in the last two episodes. Rules are, if you if our contestants here choose to not hear the multiple choice options, they will receive three points for a correct answer. If they choose to hear the multiple choice options, they will receive two points for a correct answer. If they ask me to remove an incorrect option, I they will receive one point for a correct answer. They correctly answer the question after their opponent answers the question incorrectly, they will receive one point. Some questions may have opportunities to earn bonus points. You can earn one point for each bonus question answered correctly. And in the event of a tie, there will be a tiebreaker question. You may find having a pencil and paper nearby helpful for the tiebreaker question. Okay, Mary Jo, again, is our returning guest and challenger. Do you want to receive the question or hand it off to Craig? I'm a glutton for punishment. I'll go ahead and I'll receive again. Okay. (laughs) Right. For April 11th, which Disney character received the 2,308th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in California on April 11th, 2006? I have a... Okay, this is... I was there earlier i'm i'm gonna take um multiple choice okay yeah is it a Minnie mouse b donald duck c 
Mary Poppins or D Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Winnie the Pooh. My friend loves Winnie the Pooh, and we actually um, were there not at that date, but I'm gonna go with Winnie the Pooh. He celebrated his 80th birthday by receiving a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Pooh is one of a few select animated characters to be honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, an honor that was perfectly timed to a global 18-month-long Pooh anniversary celebration Disney kicked off in December 2005. There's a bonus question here, Mary Jo. Okay. Name the seven other Disney characters who have received a star. You will receive one point for each correct answer. Ooh. <laughs> yep, you can clean up here. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. Okay, well, Mickey. Correct. Um, Donald. Correct. Well, I'm going to... Minnie. Correct. Okay. That's three points. Goofy? No. Dang. Okay. okay. So that brings you up to five points. Very good. Craig. There are four more Disney characters. Can you guess them for one point each? Uh, Snow White. Correct. Are When we're saying Disney characters, are we saying characters now owned by Disney? Correct. So Kermit <laughs> the Frog. Correct. Um, <laughs> That's why he wins so many. <laughs> he thinks uh, like that. Um. <laughs> I'm trying to think who else. I don't think it's Miss Piggy. I think it's I would say Kermit. Is Two that are in the courtyard, right? Is that it? Was that a guess, or are you just thinking out loud? Um, it was me thinking out loud. Okay, but I'll guess it too. Okay, now no. the other two were Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell. and the Muppets. Okay, I knew that the Muppets was a block, but I didn't know if you were going to be including that. Yeah, but, yeah, they're owned by Disney. Yeah. I forgot okay, about well, Tinkerbell. Good. good. Well, Craig, you have two points, so you got out of that. Very good. And now April 12th is your question. Which Disney attraction opened on April 12th, 2009? Mm, I'm going to go multiple choice. Okay. A, the American Idol experience at Disney's Hollywood Studios. B, characters in flight at Walt Disney World's Downtown Disney. C, an updated Disney's Electrical Parade at the Disneyland Resort. Or D, the Hall of Presidents with a new Barack Obama audio animatronic figure. Hmm. I think I was... I might have been... I came on vacation shortly after this time period that year. I want to say it was. Um, I want to say it was characters in flight. You are correct. It's a tethered helium-filled balloon operated by Aerofile, a company specializing in tethered helium balloons. It continues its soft opening at Downtown Disney. The balloon, which can hold up to 30 guests, depending on weather conditions, rises 400 feet above Walt Disney World for a breathtaking view. I've never ridden that. 
I, I was going to ask if either of you have been on that. I have. No. I have. Is it worth it? No. <laughs> no. Um, not not even with the heights. I just don't think the views are that great. Um, you can mm-hmm. you can have similar views from other attractions mm-hmm. at Walt Disney World. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Didn't think I'd be fascinated by seeing a view of of Disney Springs. Yeah, it's right. just go ride the front seat of Everest or any seat in Everest. And as you're going up <laughs> the lift hill, I mean, you get just as good as view of everything else. So, but but you don't go down as fast <laughs> on Everest. <laughs> okay, very good. So, Craig, you have four. Mary Jo, you have five. All righty, um, Mary Jo, April thirteenth. Who did New York City? Mayor Michael Bloomberg named the official family ambassadors for the Big Apple during a press conference in Manhattan on April 30th, 2012. I need multiple choice for this. Is it A, the Avengers, B, the Incredibles, C, the Muppets, or D, Mickey and Minnie Mouse? I'm going to go with the, your favorite characters, Michael. The Muppets take New York. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> okay. They'll promote the five boroughs domestically and abroad in an effort to boost tourism in New York City. Of course, the I Muppets make- connection yeah, to New York City can be traced back to the 1960s when creator Jim Henson brought Sesame Street to life in Manhattan. Okay, very good. Well, Mary Jo, you're ahead right now, seven, but Craig can Craig can pull can get up <laughs> yeah, there with I'm this one. About. He can tie. <laughs> okay, April fourteenth, Craig, Disneyland's forty fifth parade music changes to a mixture of classic Disney music on April fourteenth, two thousand. What was the original musical score for this parade? Um, I will take multiple choice. Was it A, Pomp in Circumstance, B, Soundtracks from Disneyland Attractions, D, an original song reimagined from Tokyo Disneyland's 10th anniversary parade, or D, a remastered version of Jolly Holiday from Mary Poppins? Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think it's B or D, and... I'm not going to lie, the fact, like, the Tokyo thing feels too similar in a way with what happened with Paint the Night, and Pomp and Circumstance is the one that just doesn't fit with the rest, Uh, but it's, I think I'm going with that because it's so out there that I don't think you would have thought of including it if it wasn't the answer. Well, except that, remember, Fantasia 2000 was released around the same time, and that was featured in that film. Oh, and it was yeah. also featured, And it was also featured in this parade. It was Michael Eisner's idea, Pomp and Circumstance. I, and it bombed. I forgot it about bombed. The, <laughs> it the Fantasia bombed 2000 connection. Yeah. yeah, but... It, 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 but I mean, all people thought about was graduation, and, and I, remember, I remember when they unveiled that parade and we were like what the heck and it was just so it, it just didn't fit in the park the one saving factor that whole thing was tarzan riding the elephant oh because but, he was shirtless yeah 
But anyway. <laughs> uh, she's honest. But, but um, yeah, he got the idea from his son's graduation to make it the soundtrack for the parade. I think people probably complained at town hall. I just remember the the overwhelming I won't say disapproval. It was just it was so oh, so blah. The, people the, hated it. Yeah, it was very and underwhelming yes, with that I with remember. that song and then they changed it. And then people were happy. So. Yeah, and then people were happy. <laughs> okay. So Craig has six. Mary Jo, you're ahead with seven points. And the question's over to you for April fifteenth. The Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color TV series episode two hundred and eight, Disneyland After Dark, aired on April fifteenth, nineteen sixty two. Hosted by Walt Disney, the show marks the network TV debut of which musical talent? 1962. Um, I'm going to take multiple choice. Okay. A, jazz great Louis Armstrong performing in Frontierland. B, teen idol Bobby Rydell. C, the Dapper Dans. Or D, the Osmond Brothers. I'm going to go with the Osmond Brothers. You are correct. And it's Alan, J. Merrill, and Wayne, no Donnie. The episode will be released theatrically overseas as a short subject and in 2001 be included in the two-disc DVD Walt Disney Treasures Disneyland USA. I think they have it on YouTube because I've seen it quite a few because I really like the Osmonds. (laughs) And they were so cute. Okay. They, They were. All right. Okay, nine points. Very good, Mary Jo. Okay, Craig, over to you. April 16th. Which Walt Disney exhibit passed testing at WED headquarters in California on April 16th, 1964, and was now ready to be flown to New York for the World's Fair? Well, I mean, I don't need to ask multiple choice because... There's only four potential answers, so really mm-hmm. I just have to guess. <laughs> well, if you know the opening date of the fair, that that would be a big clue. I don't off the top of my head. Um... I think, okay, so I think that might have been, that might have been a clue that maybe the fair opened a little bit earlier because I think there was one pavilion that was maybe delayed, and I think that was Lincoln, but I could be getting my history wrong. Is that your final answer, or are you thinking out loud? I'm, I'm going to just give it as my final. Okay. Well, the fair was scheduled to open on April 22nd. And yes, Lincoln was late. So it is great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Very good. And that brings us up to a tie. And then he was even later because he got caught in traffic when he arrived. (laughs) There was a big game going on, a big baseball game. Okay, we are tied 9-9. And Mary Jo, (laughs) it is over to you. Okay, April 17th, which Disney character returned to the Magic Kingdom after a long absence on April 17th, 2012? After a long absence? 
is an easy one. You'll get it. Oh, thank you. You'll get it. <laughs> now, now she does it. You don't have to guess it. Remember, you only need one point. So just take the multiple choice. It'll oh, it'll stick right. out to you. I'll take multiple choice. Okay. Is it A, Roger Rabbit, B, Orange Bird, oh. C, The Tremaines, or D, Davy Crockett Donald? The Orange Bird... Are you thinking out loud or just doing your Anita Bryant impression? (laughs) No, I'm going to say, really, let me get my glass of orange juice. No, I'm going to say the orange bird. You You are correct. correct. (laughs) He's all over the place now, yeah. I know. When Craig said that I would get it, no, I was like, oh, it has to be the orange bird. He returned to the sunshine tree terrace signage and cute little drink cups in Adventureland at the Magic Kingdom Park. He was a walk-around character during the resort's first decade. I'm always surprised they didn't bring him back as a walk-around character. One day. So, they will. They just add a little bit more with him every year. So Yeah. Yeah, he's on a magnet now. Annual pass holder magnet, which I want one. Somebody out there, if you have an extra one. <laughs> Would you guys see that he's a beloved character because of Florida and the oranges? and And he's unique to the park? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have to. I have to go with Craig on that one because yeah. Craig I mean, lives out there. I he was definitely used. I know in advertisements for for um, outside of necessarily Disney, but it really is just the it's Walt Disney World fans embracing a character that really has no claim on anything else but Florida. I mean, kind of in the same way that. They've all embraced Figment now. Yeah, I mean, he's always been embraced, but, like, right now more than ever, we've kind of done the same thing with the Orange Bird. Like, we're we're latching onto the stuff that makes Florida unique. See, that's what, you know, know how we we kind of um, complain about the the generalizing or the homogenizing of Disney merchandise at at the different parks, right? You bring something back with the orange bird, and that definitely says, I was at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. And you bring that and bring back a little bit of Florida. Exactly. It's. I mean, mm-hmm. it could. It, the character could fit both California and Florida, but it's. they've definitely kept it. Even though they'll sell the merch out in California, they definitely have saved all the love for, for Florida. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, I think me, they're the trying to... Florida. Ahead, There's okay. artists that are trying to create like a pineapple bird for Californians. <laughs> oh, you going to say for the Alani Resort on. or what? <laughs> no, and for out here, I, I don't think that'll catch on as much. No, yeah. I like that. I like having the unique characters at the at the different parts. I don't want to see the orange bird anywhere than at Walt Disney World. I because agree. That just right because it's just cute little special character. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Jo, you did very well. You tied the first week. Craig won the second week, but you won the third week. So congratulations. Yeah. Redemption. Yeah, redemption. That's well, right. Hold and on. Thank- Love you, Craig. Yes, I beat him. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations. Congratulations to both of you. And thank you, Mary Jo, for joining us for all these weeks and sort of giving Craig somewhat of a break from being in the you know on the hot seat all the time. Thank you. We look forward to the next time you're on the show. Me too. Well, Craig, it all worked out. 
in the end there with uh, with our competition there, our, our little trivia. So we won, so I, we lost, we all remained friends. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the most important thing. So uh, as of this recording, a, a lot of uh, announcements were made uh, all across different parks and all that. So are you looking forward to ordering a hurricane with your next meal at Disneyland's Blue Bayou restaurant? I am. I mm-hmm. I, I am. I don't eat there very often. I've only eaten there once, I think. And that might not even have been a full meal. Um, I'm trying to track it. It's been a long time. Uh, but I... I, as I if you haven't heard my thoughts on it from the Walt Disney World show... I think I, I still stand by what I said there. If there's one place in Disneyland for the public that I feel like is deserving of uh, a mixed, a specialty mixed drink or a beer or or wine, I feel like Blue Bayou is that place. I mean, obviously Club Thirty Three has it, and uh, and that's a different subject since that's not technically for the public. But in terms of all the other table service restaurants in the park i feel like i feel like blue bayou is the one that's most deserving of it and the the one that just it, it, it fits with it and uh, even more so than Oga's cantina so i i do look forward to to eating there one day and and having that hurricane or, or a different beverage mm-hmm. uh, whatever strikes my fancy at the time but i i think it's going to be uh, an interesting change and uh definitely definitely intriguing to see that it didn't go the way of walt disney world and saying uh you know we're, we're gonna add it to all the magic kingdom restaurants selections of beer and wine and it, it, instead it's just more pinpointed saying this one we're gonna give it to them and i don't think it's i don't think it's just a test to see if they're gonna roll it out to other places i think they really did think what is it, it, can we do it here and do we need to do it other places and they came up with that decision, so I'm, I, I'm okay with it. I'm for it. I I think yeah, this is a little. This is more fine dining, mm-hmm. so I think it makes sense to have it here. You know, it's not like people are going to be. It's not going to be like New Orleans where people are going to be walking around the hurricanes and the giant straws all around New Orleans Square and all that. So yeah, and, it's, uh, I think they're they're rolling it out responsibly. So yeah, and I doubt it yeah. will be as strong as a normal hurricane. Is. Oh, uh, I I'm sure it won't be. be, but I'm sure it'll be four times the cost. <laughs> oh, yeah, it'll be four times the amount of sugar as it would normally have, and four times the cost. And we will yeah. pay it, and hopefully it comes with one of those little light up uh, ice cubes as well, yes. so that way we have a souvenir. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. And they they also announced the Disneyland ticket sales, how that's all going to work, and park reservations mm-hmm. and all that. But and also California, because you know our governor does not want to be recalled, so he's doing everything he can to make sure he's not. Um, he announced that we're going to end our Rainbow of Doom COVID t- tiers in June if all goes as planned. And and you know vaccinations keep rolling out. Our you know the the covid instances keeps decreasing which i'm assuming means disneyland can go to full capacity although i have a feeling that it's still going to be park reservations and i, I i'm assuming they're still going to limit a capacity in yeah. some manner it's not going to be jam-packed the way it used to be and they're not and, and we're still going to be um mask mandates mandated so even after the the tears are dropped 
Exactly. I I think that um, I I think that you know I think that Disney wants to with the park reservation system. We know that that's in place and that's that's going to be a mainstay for a long time. And I think they will continue to limit capacity to an extent on most days because then it also lets them it really lets them manipulate the fact that the ticketing is based on uh, when there's more demand for it. So it's actually in their best, uh, it's in their best interest to, to continue to limit capacity in that way, because then if they have a date where, you know, if they start seeing dates sell out uh, specific dates and it's far enough in the future, you know, they can always open up more spots, uh, but they know for their trends with tickets, like, okay, well, we can, we can definitely charge, charge more next year for this time. And, uh, it's, 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 it's one of those systems that it's just, it's always been easy to kind of tell what their trends are based on resort availability and, and, you know, just the average amount of tickets bought and sold and for what time period but the reservation system allows them to pinpoint on this stuff so much more so uh you know it's capacity i it's it's always going to be it's always going to be a a sticking point anymore and and it's probably one of those bad decisions but we're just going to have to live with it yeah yeah Anyway, and last week we mentioned that the Q&A episode is coming up, and now we do have details. Craig, you want to run through the details? Yep. We have our set dates for this. So we are uh, we are putting the post up on Facebook, facebook.com slash disunplugged, on April 9th, 2021, today, as of when this is released. And you will see it right at the top of the page. It'll be pinned. And it's clearly marked with connecting with Walt, asking you to leave your questions for the question and answer episode. I'll go over all of that in just a second, but it will be up until the 23rd of April. So one day after Earth Day is your way to remember it. I, I know you could just remember the 23rd, but have to bring Earth Day into this somehow. So you have two full weeks to ask your questions on that Facebook post and that's the only way we are still taking questions if we're really struggling to get questions in the future we will have to obviously uh, change and adapt to that but right now uh, you know most people still have a facebook and if not you know someone with it you can always tell them hey can you go follow the disunplugged and ask this question on this one post please and thank you but uh, the questions again uh, can be anything about the theme parks Walt Disney the history of the company Imagineering uh, books movies all all of the stuff we talk about on the show ask any questions you want on that uh, just as always try to keep your questions to uh, to no asking about what do we think Walt would think about this or that because we're not going to answer those and uh, about, about to- would, would, would he purchase a hurricane at um, the Blue Bayou don't exactly. ask us that no he will not <laughs> I, I will say that he will not um, he changed and adapted with the times you never know oh, you no, never no. know with Walt I just I think it's too sweet for him. I, I don't think that would be to his taste palate, mm-hmm. just based on what he likes. Uh, you know, but he would probably order a, a Scotch Mist at, at the nineteen oh one. Yeah, I think uh, if I if I really know Walt, which I don't at all, never met him. Uh, but if I do know him, it's that I think 
he would potentially order the hurricane, but he would also have his flask on him so that way he could, uh, <laughs> you know, he could make it a little bit more to his taste. But that's if, again, we. I am just joking here. Now, if I'm not laying that out clear enough. We have no idea, so don't ask what, what we think he would think, and also try to keep your questions to more than just simple yes or no answer questions, so that way we can have a fun fun discussion about these questions, too, when, when it warrants it. And uh, again, your questions can be submitted until the 23rd on that Facebook post, and then we are hoping to have our first question and answer episode out on, on May 7th for you, mm-hmm. so you have to... Ask your questions there and then stay tuned for the 7th or then the 14th to see if we, we answer your questions. Yeah, and if, if you've submitted questions before and they didn't get answered, resubmit them. Yeah. There, see, how's your chance? Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of times where we just have way too many. And that's why we didn't answer them. I mean, of course, there are some that we just don't feel like we can answer easily or there's not enough there to to answer it or it warrants an entire episode on itself. But uh, there's there's a lot of times where there's just too many questions asked. Mm -hmm. So feel free to throw it out there again. Well, thank you, Craig. Looking forward to seeing those questions. There's usually a lot of good ones. Well, if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 